The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist, and I'm on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture, and find food truth. And today, our guest is Fiona Fisher, who is the Director of Communications for the Rachel Carson Homestead. And I met Fiona at a Beyond Pesticides meeting in Cleveland this past year and knew that I wanted to talk more with her about the Rachel Carson Homestead and the wonderful work and legacy that Rachel Carson left behind. So, Fiona, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Well, tell me, how did you get started working with the Rachel Carson Homestead? Oh, you want all my secrets. Well, this is the truth, and it's a kind of wacky story. I was living in Springdale in Pennsylvania, which is Rachel Carson's birth town, and uh, apparently a couple of blocks away from Rachel Carson's birthplace, and had no idea who Rachel Carson was. And Al Gore came to the homestead in 2000 to kick off his presidential run. He was a big fan of Rachel Carson. Apparently he had a photograph of her in his office when he was vice president, And I was walking my dog on some scrubland nearby at 7 o'clock in the morning, and this gentleman in a black suit and black sunglasses and a little twiggy thing coming out of his ear came over and sort of said, oh, excuse me, ma'am. And I was like, who the hell are you? Yeah. (laughs) It was a bit of a shock. I was in my sweats and a T-shirt. And that's how I found out about you know, how famous this person was, Rachel Carson was. I mean, my gosh, Al Gore was coming to town to to be there. And I got the uh, biography out of the library, uh, Linda Lear's biography, Witness for Nature, and read it and just immediately identified with this woman who had, you know, died a couple of years after I was born, mostly originally with her childhood because she had this wonderful uh, 65 acres to roam around on in in Springdale. Of course, it's all gone now. And going out for walks in the woods and finding different birds and birds' nests and having her mother be basically the mentor for this kind of education. And for me, it was my grandmother. I grew up in the Kent countryside in England and was always out in the woods going for walks and finding new birds and new trees and new plants and I don't know I just immediately identified with her and then when I read on and discovered how she had basically changed everything with her book Silent Spring before Silent Spring came out in 1962 there was no such thing as an environmentalist there were bird watchers, people who wanted to conserve nature, gardeners maybe, but there was never really any advocate for the environment as it were. And everything changed after that book came out and I thought, my gosh, I have to get involved in this somehow. And I'm a writer by trade and I got roped into the Rachel Carson board and then I became a staff member uh, about five years ago. 
So I'm actually doing what I love and getting paid for it, too. That's wonderful. In preparation for this interview, I was reading about Rachel Carson, and I learned that she lived between 1907 and 1964, that she was a marine biologist by training, a writer, of course, and the book that she's most famous for, of course, is Silent Spring. And it's so interesting that you mentioned, you know, prior to Rachel Carson, there weren't really any people that you could call environmentalists. And it's such a shame because it seems like the the term environmentalist sometimes is used with such animosity. It's like, oh, those darn environmentalists, they're at it again. Really, in, in learning about Rachel Carson, I think what she most wanted to do was simply protect our environment, that, the, the commons, if you will, and to instill or create a sense of wonder for all life around us. Absolutely, and and you know, especially the sense of wonder. I mean, there was a book that started off as an, uh, an article for a parents' magazine in the 50s that she wrote because in her personal life at that time, she had a quite close-knit family that were living with her and her niece had a little boy whose name was Roger. And so Rachel had this little boy running around all over the place and she delighted in, in exposing him to nature pretty much the way her mother had done for her, I think, and realized how important it was to have an adult in a child's life to nurture that sense of wow that children have for nature. I mean, you can they can look at a, a clump of moss and see whole worlds going on in there. Mm-hmm. And I'm sorry. No, I, I I was laughing because I so agree, and it's it's free. It's free entertainment. <laughs> yes, you know, and it's amazing. And somewhere along the line. We we forget the importance of immersing children in nature. Right. And I think Rachel, as I said, she wrote this article and she always wanted to get back to it as a book and never really had the chance and unfortunately died before she got the chance. But they did publish it after she died as a, The Sense of Wonder. And it's still such a delightful book about taking Roger out in in the middle of the night to go and look at the stars or go and see uh, the crabs on on the beach or something like that. And Richard Louvre, who wrote more recently the book Last Child in the Woods, took it a step further, basically contending that children today have nature deficit disorder. And I think he's right. We have many school groups that come to Rachel's house and they come, uh, their teacher has already told them how famous she was and how she changed the world. Part of the joke about this is that they come expecting a mansion because the current culture is, well, she's famous, she must have been rich. And that's that's a far stretch. Um, it's a, Originally it was a four-room house two up, two down, and a lean-to kitchen on the back, and no indoor plumbing. Um, (laughs) (laughs) That's a great lesson for kids. It is, it is. It's basically saying it doesn't matter who you are or where you come from, you can do this too. You can change the world. Yeah. What a great message. It is, it is. And it's, it's lovely to see 
the little light bulbs go on, especially when you ask them, okay, so who's going to grow up and change the world at the end of the tour? And you know, all, the, all the hands go up. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's so wonderful. Oh. Um, well, you know, but, I, I had, I'm sorry, were you going to say something else? No, I was, I was thinking about the, what Rachel wanted most, I think. I mean, you said yourself that Silent Spring, she's most famous for that. And so many people don't even realize that she wrote three books on the ocean before she ever got around to that. And the ocean was a huge passion for her. Mm. She would be so sad today to see what's happening in the Gulf. Oh, my goodness. Yes. Yeah. Yes, she would. Yes. You know, I remember reading in the journal, there's a Journal of Agricultural History, fascinating article about how defensive the pesticide industry became after Rachel Carson's book because she really identified the true hazards of these pesticides. In fact, I, I believe she said we shouldn't call them insecticides, we should call them biocides mm-hmm. because they were so harmful to the entire spectrum of life on earth absolutely um, not necessarily just after i mean ju- before the publication of the book the new yorker wanted to serialize it and one of the chemical companies i believe it was the montrose chemical company sued the new yorker to try and stop them from doing it they did it anyway and of course the rest is history uh, right John F. Kennedy read the book and was very concerned about it and set up a presidential scientific committee that met with Carson, met with the Agriculture Department, the Public Health Department, many of the chemical companies, and they took about a year, and in the end they came back and said, you know, she's right. We need to be very concerned about this because we were using tons and tons and tons of pesticides all over the place with absolutely no long-term knowledge of what exposure would do to the environment and to the people who were being exposed to it. Right. Well, you know, I wonder today, if you look at what some of the crops that have been genetically modified to withstand spraying with different pesticides uh, or herbicides. You know, what would Rachel Carson think of that? Yes, we do have more controls in place. We've got the EPA. We've got the Clean Air and Clean Water Act. But I don't know, you know, how does our insecticide spray rate compare today to the days of Rachel Carson? I think it's it's the difference of the pesticides for the most part that are being used today. I mean, we're not using DDT in this country anymore, so that's probably a good thing. Um, Right. (laughs) Although there is a loophole that should the United States government ever decide that there was a health hazard, we could use it again. Mm. I, I think it's one of the things that she said when she got to testify before Congress in 1963 She said, you know, look, I'm not asking that we never use pesticides. That would be ridiculous. But she felt that there needed to be more research put into lower doses, lower concentrations, not so harmful, not the ones that stay around forever and ever. And some of that has been done. The genetically modified stuff, it 
seems to be, and I can't quote you any numbers on this, but what I've read and what some other scientists have, have found is that we're actually using more pesticides around the genetically modified crops. That's right. That's my understanding as well. Chuck Bembrook at the Organic Center reported over 300 million more pounds since the introduction of genetically modified crops because when you think about it, they're genetically modified to withstand the pesticide or herbicide spray and then as bacteria and bugs do they and weeds, they become resistant and then lo and behold we have to find new or more potent pesticides. I, it's my understanding now that Dow is looking at adding a new trait that will make crops resistant to 2,4-D, which was one of the active ingredients in Agent Orange. Yes, it was. One of the chemicals that Ontario and Quebec have both banned from uh, cosmetic uses of pesticides, and I believe that Dow is currently uh, looking into suing Ontario, or not, sorry, not Ontario, Quebec, uh, through a loophole in the NAFTA trade agreement because it might interfere with profits, is that right? Yes. Yeah. It would seem to be, the, I mean, I can't imagine why else they would bother to sue them. Yeah, I remember reading that, and their their reasoning was they were suing because it interfered with their rights to have a profit on their products. So it's it's very interesting, and I think that if Rachel Carson taught us anything, it's, as you say, how one person can indeed make a difference. She used her voice through her pen to raise awareness and look at the legacy she's created. I mean, here we have certainly the homestead where you are, based in Springdale, Pennsylvania, where you have school children and you have events that bring people from all over the country. But I think that it, what a ripple effect she had, and I think she'd be so delighted to know to this day what a difference she's made. I, I think so, I think so. In 2006, the United Kingdom Environment Agency, there's their equivalent of our EPA, put together a list of all the people in history that had done the most to save the planet, and Rachel came in as number one. Wow. Uh, she beat Buddha, she beat everybody. Wow. <laughs> Prince Charles, Al Gore, and, and that sort of highlights one of the the interesting things. Uh, To a certain extent, Rachel Carson is more famous overseas than she is in her own country. Wow. Most of the environment programs, at least in the Western Hemisphere, can definitely trace their beginnings, their early beginnings, back to Silent Spring. Well, if you're just joining us, let me remind our listeners that we are speaking with the communications director at the Rachel Carson Homestead based in Springdale, Pennsylvania, Fiona Fisher. Fiona, tell me, I know that uh, Rachel Carson's Homestead features many fantastic programs, both for children and adults. And before we did our interview, I know we spoke about one of probably the most important events you had this year, and that is a presentation by E.O. Wilson, who, correct me if I'm wrong, but I would say he's the father of biodiversity. Yes, he, he's pretty much the founder of the study of biodiversity, as well as a whole bunch of other things to do with conservation. 
he's such a wonderful man. He actually was one of the the scientists who contacted Rachel Carson when she was researching for Silent Spring because, of course, he had discovered the um, imported fire ant in the south when he was a young man and then he grew older and basically became a a total expert on this uh, invasive species and he helped her a lot with her research in the fire ant chapter of Silent Spring so he's probably one of the few people left who who ever worked with Rachel Carson There's a wonderful book that he's affiliated with I believe it was published with the Harvard School of Medicine that talks about the importance of biodiversity in terms of sustaining human health as we know it and human existence as we know it, that all creatures on Earth are intricately related. Absolutely. And that's one of the things that Rachel talked about, that the interconnectedness of all life. There's no way that you can do one thing to one part of, if you like, the web of life without disturbing everything else. Everything has its place and everything has a reason for being there. And having Dr. Wilson talk about biodiversity in this International Year of Biodiversity, that's the United Nations uh, International Year of Biodiversity, was was very, very special. And to have him there in Pittsburgh is wonderful. A lot of people think of biodiversity as tigers or, you know, fuzzy creatures you might see in the zoo. And while that's all true, it's everything. It's every little microbe you can find in the soil or in the ocean, you know, currently being drowned out by oil in the Gulf. Everything is important for our continued existence on this planet. And... To a certain extent, we still have this we're master of the universe. Right. Uh, you know, we, we can do whatever we want, and, you know, the planet will survive, and, well, maybe not. Or mm-hmm. maybe the planet will survive, but we won't, because uh, <laughs> we'll pollute the planet so badly that it will just shake us off like a bad case of fleas. Um, <laughs> yeah. Did, did E.O. Wilson talk about the Gulf incident at all? Briefly. Unfortunately, I was running around like a mad thing and didn't get to hear every last word. But I know that we uh, video recorded the whole thing and we will be posting it on uh, YouTube within the next few weeks. That's wonderful. And I want to let our listeners know, too, that the Rachel Carson Homestead has a fantastic website, which is simply www.rachelcarsonhomestead.org, one word. One of the pieces that I love from the website is the Rachel Carson legacy. And it emphasizes the fact that she really did not, as you mentioned earlier, she didn't insist on radical changes. She just wanted precaution against irreversible damage. And I really liked the series of environmental ethic points that she made. Live in harmony with nature. Preserve and learn from natural places. Minimize the impact of man-made chemicals on natural systems of the world. And finally, to consider the implications of human activities on the global web of life. I love the term web of life, which you used. Oh, thank you. I mean, we, we basically spent 
not too long actually working out that that really was her ethic and that that covers everything one of the things that we would challenge we consistently challenge people to do and that includes businesses and government agencies is to make a commitment to permanent and measurable change basically to gear towards being sustainable we can reduce our impact as a web of ecosystems that we call earth whether by conserving energy sources or using organic products, avoiding use of dangerous chemicals, reducing our fossil fuel consumption, of course. Um, Anybody can make a difference. You can do it on a tiny scale, like buying from a local farm, changing your light bulbs to the fluorescent ones, or even the LEDs, which are even more cost-effective and last a lot longer, using organic practices in the garden, not using any of those sprays in or around your home, especially around your children. Recycling, I mean, it's it's just simple stuff, really. Um, I think we had talked about this before. Sometimes people become overwhelmed with how mammoth this task of finding a sustainable path can be and and what can you do about it is just too big and so that's when you have to just come back to yourself and say okay what one thing can I do I think it makes a lot of sense to break it down into small pieces and to prevent feeling overwhelmed as you say and I want to let our listeners know that there are challenges that are described on the homestead website with some great ideas behind each strategy. So, for example, you know, recycling, just recycling paper. Or, as you mentioned earlier, looking at our energy use or looking at how we use chemicals in our own gardens and taking a risk and saying, you know, what might it be like if I didn't use those chemicals one year? Maybe it wouldn't be quite as devastating as the media would like us to believe. If you could send our listeners off with a message from your understanding of Rachel Carson, what would it be? Oh, boy. (laughs) Well, uh, I, I think it would take me back to the ethic. And more than anything, it's just living in harmony with nature. I know that sounds sort of like, oh, okay, so we have to all go away and build ourselves log cabins in the mountains somewhere and live off the land. It's not necessarily that complicated, although that that sounds like a lot of fun for me. Um, Right. (laughs) It's basically just remembering that we're just one species on this planet and to learn how to coexist with all of the other species. Some of them aren't particularly, you know, favorites of ours, like when the ants start coming in the kitchen or something like that. But we have to learn to live with all of these other species because we're all interdependent on each other. Right. I noticed that you have many partners and many resources listed, and I was curious to know how the homestead was funded. It's it's a mixture. It's a a foundation support, certainly. We're blessed in Pittsburgh to have some really wonderful foundations 
including the Heinz Endowments and the Richard King Mellon Foundation. Also, we have a small membership. We always need new members. Great. <laughs> and one of the things that we're gearing up for now is our annual, well, this will be the fourth year, Rachel's Sustainable Feast. It's it's a glorious street fair of southwestern Pennsylvania, really. We have top local chefs who are already buying from local farmers who are either sustainable or, or organic. And we have some of the environment conservation groups in town. They come. And also we've got a lot of eco-friendly and fair trade vendors that are setting up business and it's just a great way to introduce the greater Pittsburgh region, southwestern Pennsylvania, to all the really cool stuff that's going on in their own backyards, and they just don't know about it yet. And the food is out of this world. I mean, we've got so many sustainable and organic farmers in western Pennsylvania, and it's this big secret because, you know, their produce doesn't usually get to... Uh, be shown in, in in the large supermarkets. Of course, you know, everybody can buy directly from farmers these days, but they just really do need a, a lot of support. There was a report that just came out, I think... The American Farmland Trust report that we spoke yeah, about. Yeah, that's right, that's right. And it's it's very concerning because basically Pennsylvania made the top 20 list of the rate of losing farmland, according to the American Farmland Trust, we're, we're basically losing two acres a minute. You know, Fiona, unfortunately, I have to say that our time together has ended. Okay. But I want to let our listeners know that the Rachel's Sustainable Feast will be taking place on August 29th. So if you're looking for a road trip, if you're anywhere near the Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania area, I would definitely not miss that event. And you can find out more information on the Rachel Carson Homestead site. I'd like to thank Fiona Fisher very much for being with us today. She, again, is the Director of Communications for the Rachel Carson Homestead. Thank you, Fiona, for being here. You're very welcome. I'm glad we met in Cleveland. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. And thank you, listeners, so much for joining us. Food Sleuth Radio is produced at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri.